Okay, let's, um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Are we ready, Ken? Yeah. We're ready to go? All right. Father, this morning we're so thankful for the lovely weather and also for blessing us with uh, another day of life and the opportunity to think and to study your word. I pray as we contemplate another one of the seven churches now in the book of Revelation, may you help us recognize our place in history, but most importantly, may our hearts be right with you, that we may be ready when you come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to spend most of our time there today. We have gone through chapter 1, and we've gone through three churches uh, in the sequence of seven churches so far. We've talked about Ephesus, which is the apostolic church, which went through about uh, the first 100 years of church history, from the times of the apostles until about 100 AD. Um, And then we had the second church, which is the church of Smyrna, which is the church of uh, persecution. It is the church that got persecuted for 10 days. You should be tried for 10 days. The uh, Diocletian uh, persecution at the end of the um, Roman era. Or I guess it's not the end of the Roman era, but the emperors. And then we talked about the compromising church, which is Pergamos, which actually corresponds with the conversion of um, Constantine. I didn't mention this two weeks ago, but Constantine, he was a pagan king. He had a miraculous sign. He marched his soldiers through a, a river and baptized them and became a Christian. But that was really Christianity in name only. And it was Constantine that declared the pagan day of worship of, sun, of the sun, venerable day of the sun. Well, why don't we just, for the sake of unity, let's bring everyone together. Let's just worship all on the same day. Let's just call Sunday the day of Christian worship too. Since, after all, I'm, I'm the emperor and I'm a Christian now. So Pergamus was a church of compromise. Uh, Balak, a king, uh, teaching people to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and fornication, uh, religious or, or union of church and state, I should say. Those things all happened parallel and quite uh, closely in history with the conversion or the supposed conversion of Constantine. And that ended right about three... Um, excuse me. That period ended about five, nine, uh, 538, okay? And that's where we're going to start today. We're talking about the third church. Revelation chapter 2 is the church of Thyatira. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 18, and we're going to read until the end of the chapter. So verse 18 to verse 29. If I could have a volunteer, raise your hand, wait for the mic, read out loud with... A well-supported pear-shaped tone so everyone can, can hear. All right, we've got someone over here. From chapter, chapter 2, verse 18, until the end of the chapter. And to the church, excuse me, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works love, service, and faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. 
Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you very much. So here Thyatira is... uh if you look at the, the length of this letter to, or the message to Thyatira compared to Pergamos and compared to Smyrna, it is actually a, a fair bit longer. And what you also notice, several things, is that Christ, you know, we, we have the regular outline of the message. Christ introduces himself. And then when he gives a commendation, it's very short. It's a very short commendation, but the rebuke is very long. It takes about four verses where he talks about what I have against you, the few things I have against the church. And then there is no no additional admonition. Basically, Christ says, whatever you have, hang on to it. I'm not going to place upon you any more burdens. And then he gives the blessing to the overcomers. So, Thyatira is an interesting church. Let's uh, begin with looking at Christ's introduction to him of himself. Verse 18, it says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, what, what mental picture do you get of someone with eyes like flames of fire? You know, what, it's a very descriptive term, very visual. What, like, when you see, when you look at someone... And they have eyes that look like flames of fire. What, what do you sort of feel? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It's like they, they have penetrating eyes that can look right through you. They know what you're thinking just by looking at you. Christ has penetrating eyes. That's a nice application. But more specifically, I'm not going to turn there, but in Revelation 19, and I'll just make this note now, the church of Thyatira has a lot of application, a lot of uh, relationship with Revelation chapter 17, 18, and 19. Those three chapters are very, very much reflected by some of the words that are used in Thyatira. But Jesus, the next time he is described as having eyes of flames of fire, is when he comes back for the second time. When he comes back as the conqueror, as the king of kings, lord of lords, his vesture is dipped in blood, on his thighs the name of the word of God, on him, on his head is many crowns, eyes as a flame of fire. <clears throat> that is a description of Christ when he is coming to 
judge or when he comes to execute judgment. It's the victorious Christ. It's not the lamb that was slain Christ. It's not the, um, the shepherd Christ or the fisherman Christ. All of those are equally Jesus Christ. But the aspect that the eyes of flame of fire represents is really when he comes and he reads the intents of the heart. He, he knows your motives. There's nothing you can hide from him. Hide us from the face of the lamb for the day of his wrath has come. I'm paraphrasing Revelation 6. Eyes of flames of fire. Okay? Now, the next description is uh, feet like fine or f- as fine brass. Let's look in Revelation chapter 1. Um, Revelation chapter 1. And uh, let's see. what Verse 15. Verse 15. It gives added uh, description to, to uh, what, what Christ looks like here. Uh, Ken, let's have a volunteer. Revelation 1 verse 15, just one verse. Anyone, quickly? All right, thank you very much. It says, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and His voice as the sound of many waters. So, the description of Christ's feet is not just that it looks like brass, but specifically it's brass as though it was tried in a furnace. It is heated up. It's in the fire. And what story in the Bible do you remember where Jesus, or the Son of God, was inside a furnace? The three Hebrew boys. And it actually has some sort of relevance. Uh, I don't want to stretch this too far. But um, this church also has direct relationship with the beast power. Uh, we talk, we're going to talk about Jezebel in just a little bit. It's also a persecution time. It is the church during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, where the church or the faithful people of God is going through the fiery trials as the three Hebrew worthies were thrown into the furnace. And Jesus is standing there representing himself as, I'm already in the fire before you even get there. He's going through the troubles with his people. So that's the introduction of Christ. Number one, he reads our intents. And motives, he comes with a purpose to give according to every man's works. And then he comes um, suffering with his people in their afflictions, in the furnace. Okay, verse 19 is the commendation he gives to them. It's very brief. Verse 19, it says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. Is Christ being redundant? He... uh, he sort of lost his train of thought. He said the same thing twice. No, he makes it clear. He says, and the last to be more than the first. So Christ said that he commends this church in Thyatira for their works on purpose. They had good works in the beginning, but through the course of this church's history, their works increased. Their works were 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 better, in a sense, at the end, as in the beginning. And I already, I already told you, I'm going to prove this in just a little bit, but just hold on to your seats for a little, little while. This period of, of, of church history, Thyatira, goes from the time of 538 to 1798, 1260 literal years, prophetic days. At the beginning of the persecution time, Largely, the truth of God was lost sight of. But what happened at the end of the 1260 years that sort of brought 
truth back into the, the limelight. There's a very significant event that changed the course of human history, right? There were sig- significant figures by the name of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and uh, Wycliffe was actually before that a uh, number of years and also Huss was a number of years before that. But the reformers, the reformers came in about the 16th century. Uh, I highly recommend Daubigny's History of the Reformation of the 16th Century, wonderful set of books. <clears throat> the Protestant Reformation came and sort of uh, brought, it didn't necessarily bring an end because um, God brought the end, but at the end of the 1260 years of, dark, uh, of the Dark Ages, light actually began to grow brighter as from the beginning. The progression from Ephesus... Smyrna and Pergamus has been a steady decline in truth. It's been a decline in morality, a decline in fidelity to God. But here in Thyatira, in the darkest of times, when God's people are being tried in the furnace of afflictions, their faith becomes more pure, and Christ commends them for that. It's not a long commendation, but it is worthwhile to note that this is the first church. Actually, I believe it's the only church where Christ commends them for improving upon their faith. There are other churches where he doesn't have any rebukes for them, and that's, that's great too. Uh, but this church, through the most difficult times, Christ recognizes your works at the end are better than your works at the beginning, and that's worthy of commendation. But that's all he has to say for that. Now we get to the, the, the basic meat or the main message of Thyatira, and it's the rebuke. Now, what does Christ have against this church? Okay, let's look in verse 20. We'll take one verse at a time. Verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, Jezebel ought to bring very vivid memories uh, of, of the Bible story. Now, when we look at Jezebel, wh- what are some characteristics of Jezebel that you all are familiar with? Who was she? Maybe um, <laughs> just call it out and I'll repeat it for the recording because, uh, you know, I want to make sure we keep moving here. I heard a few th- comments over here. Okay, uh, wife of Ahab. Ahab was the Jewish king, king of Israel. Um, and uh, Jezebel, okay, go ahead. I'll just repeat it in the mic. She was a foreign uh, wife to Ahab. Foreign wife? Her was the king of, Tyre. King of the Zidonians, actually. Zidonians. But very close, very close. And, uh, he was the head of the representative of the worship of Baal. That's right. That's right. Uh, the Zidonians was, were worshippers of Baal. That's why Baal worship came in. Um, Jezebel was a pagan woman, pagan princess, idolatrous pagan princess who married uh, the worship of the true God, the king of Israel. What Jezebel the name means, do you know? I don't know the name, what it means. I'm sorry. I, sh- I could look it up. What's that? The characteristic of Jezebel, um, the name, characteristics, cold, 
just give give us a clue about you know just um you know just um it will give us a clue about what you are looking for yeah we're we're working on it we're we're getting there thank you so Jezebel those two things are very significant she's a pagan idolatrous princess who married a Jewish king a worshiper of the true god and I mentioned this before, if you, if you go back and you look at the story of Jezebel, uh, Jehu came to, to, to kill her, and do you rem- anyone remember what she did as her final act before she was about to get murdered? She painted herself. She put on all of the makeup and all of the cosmetics and jewelry and all of that stuff. Uh, interesting note. Interesting note. I'm not going to say much more than that, you know what the Bible relates, who the Bible relates with, cos- colorful cosmetics and things. But um, Jezebel actually looks a whole lot like the harlot of Revelation chapter 17. There's going to be some other relationships in just a moment. But this is, this is the first thing. Jezebel is a woman, and in the Bible, a woman represents a church. And she is an apostate church, pagan church. But she unites herself with a king, or a, should I say, a Christian king. Kingly power, political power. And this union brings about persecution. Jezebel is a very fitting description of the papacy. Very fitting description. And actually, it continues, and she says she claims to be a prophetess. She claims to be a prophetess. Now, who... What's a prophet? You know, a very succinct definition. What's a prophet? That's right. Pretty much I hear the same thing. Someone who speaks for God or a representative of God to his people. And, you know, it's interesting that when you look at the writings of Ellen White, when people ask her, are you a prophet? You, you know what she says? She ever, she says, this is in, uh, I believe, first or second selected messages. I wish I printed it out. She says, I have ever answered, I am the messenger of the Lord. A messenger of the Lord, if you study it out, it's actually more than a prophet, okay? (laughs) Moses was a messenger of the Lord. But the point is just this. Prophets rarely, true prophets of God rarely stand up and trumpet from the mountaintop. Listen to me, I'm a prophet. I'm, I'm God's representative. Listen to me. It's very rare that they do that. Generally speaking, if you look at the trend throughout history, prophets don't want their job. Prophets resist because they don't feel adequate. And God says, that is exactly why I want you to be my representative. But Jezebel here gives a contrasting picture. She says, I'm the queen. I'm God's representative. And interestingly enough... Right about this time, 538 or so, there became a church-state power that claimed to be God's representative on earth. The vicar of the Son of God. Jezebel is representative of the rise of the papal power right here in Thyatira. No wonder Christ has such strong words to say because this is also the power that at the end of time is going to bring about the final crisis. So here, we're continuing here. Jezebel, um, we already talked about some of the things that she teaches when we talked about Pergamos. Eat things sacrificed unto idols, commit fornication. Uh, it, it's all related to compromise, bringing in 
uh, explicit uh, moral degeneracy through gray areas, things that may or may not be sinful, uh, eating things sacrificed unto idols is not necessarily sinful. Paul says, if, if it's a stumbling block to your brother, don't do it. But we know that the food has no less nutritional value. But through that avenue, if it leads people to fornication, then we've got a major problem on our hands, stumbling block. Okay, but we continue here. And uh, let's look in verse 21. Verse 21, it says here, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Now, thinking back to ancient Jezebel, the real Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, did God give her a time, a space of time to repent? That's right. Three and a half years. Well, let's just, um, let's look at a verse. Because I'd rather get it from the Bible. Let's look in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 17. <clears throat> James chapter 5 verse 17. Ken, where are you? Microphone. Let's have a volunteer. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Is that James chapter 5? James chapter 5. Chapter five. One chapter over. Uh, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. <clears throat> and interesting that the Bible, at least in the King James, uses the same word, space. The space of three and a half years. And it's very specific. God gave Jezebel three and a half years to test her, to see if she would repent. But three and a half years of what? It was a drought. And a drought brought about a famine. And there is a time, the Bible prophesied that there was a time, when there was a famine, not for bread, not for water, but for what? the Word of God. And isn't that exactly what happened in the 1260 years in the Middle Ages? Famine for the Word of God. And it was during that time that God was giving the papal power time to demonstrate who it really is. If it's going to go in one way, if it's going to go in the other way. I'll just throw this out there. We're going to come to it. Uh, Norman and I have discussed this concept before. Actually, I'll show it to you in a, in a minute from Daniel, but it's also in the book of Revelation. It repeats itself. The 1260 years is absolutely crucial in the great controversy. It is absolutely essential because the 1260 years of papal power is a clear demonstration to the whole watching universe what is the end result of Satan's plan of government. It is the most blatant demonstration to everyone who cares to see what ultimately transpires if Satan is in control. The papal power ultimately brings about a self-destruction in Revelation chapter 11. We're going to talk about that. And also, we're going to see in just a minute that it is because of what happens in the 1260 that God is clear to begin the judgment. Because now everyone is clear. Oh, God, you're right. So God has the authorization in a sense 
to stand up and begin his judging work. But let's, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's go back here. So we went through chapter, uh, verse 21. Space to repent, three and a half years. That's 1260 days. 1260 literal years if you uh, calculate uh, by prophetic time. So here we go, verse 22. Verse 22, it says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And the bed, we know it represents a sick bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And it's interesting to note the different tense from verse 21 to verse 22. Verse 21, it says, I gave her space. But then in verse 22, all of a sudden she says, uh, God says, I will cast her. So what that means is that the, pers- or, or the punishment of Jezebel and all those who commit fornication with her comes in the future. And when you study the book of Revelation, it happens at the end of time. The seven last plagues, it, uh, the followers of the beast power, they get, they get horribly sick. They get sunstroke, they get boils, they get, they get sick. <clears throat> and then those um, that commit fornication with her also suffer. Now I am making sure I give you all the verses here. Let's look at, um, let's look at Revelation 17 real quickly. Just so we're not just taking my word for it. Revelation chapter 17, if someone can read verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. Carlos. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show you, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of earth, of the earth, have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth, have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, uh, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a, a golden cup in her hand, full of the abominations and filthiness of her, of her fornication." And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And you can read the rest of chapter 17 and chapter 18. It's, it's just very clear relationship with what message is given in Thyatira. But a couple things I want to point out here is that the punishment goes to Jezebel and also those who commit fornication with her. In chapter 17, we see the kings of the earth commit fornications with her. But also, it says that Babylon the Great, that harlot that sits on that beast, is also a mother. You notice that? It's a mother. So let's look in verse 23, back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, it says, And I will kill her children with death. So even right here in... Thyatira, we see that Jezebel spawns children after her kind. It's not just Jezebel. There will come others like her. Children. Uh, There's going to be more that comes later on in Revelation about that. But here it says in verse 23, I will kill her children with death. 
and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. The idea of searching the reins and searching the heart or searching the mind, that's the eyes of the flames of fire concept. But what's another word we can use to describe the process by which Christ does that? If he's searching through, you know, maybe, you know, the, the, the uh, filing cabinet, that is all of your thoughts, your intents, your motives, your memories. If he's flipping through all the files, what's another word, particularly a, a judicial term? Investigation. Very good. Christ represents himself now, now that Jezebel has demonstrated his true power, Satan's uh, greatest demonstration of his form of government. Christ says, because of what has happened, now I will let everyone know that I am God who investigates each person's heart and mind. And what is the purpose of this investigation? So that I can give every one of you according to your works. And when you study in Revelation, it's very clear, Christ gives every man his works when he comes the second time. So the judgment comes prior to. So here Christ is giving the hint. He's saying, judgment is coming. Investigative judgment is on its way. And it's also interesting that when you study the book of Daniel, this is just a review, kick back to something we've looked at before. The prophecy of the 2300 days, Daniel 8.14, when the sanctuary shall be cleansed, when the investigative judgment shall begin, that prophecy is not unsealed until what year? Until the time of the end, but the time of the end ends when? 1798. Interesting. Three and a half years of, of time for repentance for Jezebel, it ends at 1798. Christ says judgment is about to come, and right in the same time, the prophecy of Daniel 8.14 is unsealed. It's open so people can actually understand. That's just a relationship that we can see in Daniel and Revelation. All right, continuing, we're going to wrap things up here. Verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, and as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan. Notice Christ, he equates Jezebel and her doings and her actions as the depths of Satan. Interesting relationship. As they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Christ is being merciful to his people. He realizes it's a time of severe trial, severe affliction. And in mercy, he says, I'm going to defer what you really need to know for another time. What you have, that's actually in the next verse. Uh, verse 25, but that which you already hold fast, you, that which you already have, hold fast till I come. <clears throat> this is um, very much like what Christ told his disciples. You remember he says, I have many things to tell you now, but you cannot bear them. Or I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. It is not that Christ feels that truth is not important, but in his mercy he realizes that we can only accept so much at a time. And so it's dangerous for us to look back to the reformers and say, we need to go back to their pure faith, go back to the historic faith, go back to that uh, unadulterated faith. It's not that it was not good, 
but Christ very clearly states that there is further progression to come. There is more light to be, to progress. And so, you know, Martin Luther, people often cite, well, he didn't keep the Sabbath. Isn't he going to be saved? Yes, absolutely, I believe he's going to be saved. But Christ did not find it necessary at that time to open that light to him. And in fact, there were people that kept the Sabbath all throughout the Dark Ages, even amidst the deepest uh, trials, by the way. And so, Christ is, um, he doesn't give them much more admonition than simply hold fast to what you already have. And he continues, verse 26, we're almost done. And he that overcometh, so the promise to the overcomers, he says, and uh, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received my father. Every time that the, the term rod of iron is mentioned in the Bible, I have found three times. It refers to Christ ruling people or ruling his enemies. Christ ruling his enemies. In Psalm chapter 2, that's the first time it comes up. The heathens, they're imagining a vain thing against God's son. Uh, Jesus Christ is declared God's only begotten son, and he is given a rod of iron to rule those pagans or heathens that are persecuting him. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 12. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 19 again. He comes with a rod of iron. All, is, all that's to say is Christ is telling his people, I've been where you, at, where you are at. I have suffered, but just as Christ gave, or God the Father gave me authority to rule my, my enemies, one day you will too. Right now, Jezebel may have power over the nations. One day you will. Hold fast that which you have. When you overcome, you also will rule with me. And so, uh, you can look in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. That verse very clearly gives us the picture of when the saints will indeed rule with Christ for a thousand years. And in fact, they will pass judgment. They will judge those who were not saved. Judgment in the sense of determining with God uh, whether their punishment is fair or not. Answering our question. There's um, a very beautiful message in the millennium. But verse 28, it says, And I will give him the morning star. Verse 29, He that had an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The morning star in the book of Revelation is Jesus. Jesus, in Revelation 22, says, I am the bright and morning star. So he, it's a promise of the second coming. But more specifically, it is a, it is a, uh, a caution, an exhortation, an admonition at the same time. What do I mean by that? Let's look in Second Peter. This is the last verse we'll look at. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. I'll just read it for the sake of time. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. It says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn, and the day star, which is another word for the morning star, arise in your hearts. Christ is saying, I'm going to give you the morning star or the day star. But the Bible in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that for us to be ready for that day star, we need to take heed to the word of his prophecies now. The word of the prophecy now is the light to guide us until that bright morning star can come into our lives. So it's an encouragement to those in the dark ages 
because they indeed were in a dark place. And for us today, trust the word because the morning star is coming. Okay, let's, let's end there.